inquiry is the national production, consumption and export of food. So that will come into it where we send our food, where those export markets are and, and where our food is going. Uh, we're also going to be looking at things like key inputs such as fuel, fertiliser, uh, labour uh, and their impact on production costs and the potential opportunities and threats of climate change on food production in Australia. But getting back to your specific question about exporting, uh, you know, Ag is one of our top exports behind uh, the extractive industries and it is something that we want to grow. So how we do that sustainably to keep our own people fed at a fair price, you know, that's one of the big questions. We know that food has become more expensive. Uh, I don't think it's lost on anyone that we were paying, you know, double digits for, for lettuce during a point of the year. And we also know that some of our Indigenous communities pay extraordinarily high amounts for food. And we know that some of our other rural and remote communities as well uh, have incredibly inflated food prices. So I think this is something that the inquiry would also like to hear from people about. That is the Australian Parliament's Agriculture Committee Chair, Meryl Swanson, speaking to Jane McNaughton. It is 11 past 12. You are now tuned to the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia. Uh, a slight uh, switching uh, mishap earlier on, but it is great to have you along now right through until one o'clock, hopefully. And Meryl Swanson, who is from the Australian Parliament's Agriculture Committee, just to recap what she was saying, she's actually heading up this inquiry into food production and food security here in Australia. She says it's a really critical time for agriculture here and overseas. Uh, the price of food clearly going up due to all those well, a whole list of reasons, isn't it? Energy costs, fuel, labour, transport, fertiliser. So that inquiry is underway now. Submissions to that inquiry are open until the 9th of December. Now, if you want to go and have a look at it, make a submission, go to the Parliament of Australia homepage, hit the drop-down box on the Parliamentary Business tab, select Committees, and then search for Food Security to find that link to the inquiry. 12 past 12. And as I mentioned, that latest consumer price index data does show that the annual food price inflation reached 9% in the September quarter, which is the highest annual rise in food prices that we've seen since 2006. Here in Perth, the product that's jumped up in price the most is milk. The price of milk is up more than 10% in the last three months. So let's head out to the farm to find out what this increase in the retail price means at the farm gate. Dale Hanks is a dairy farmer milking 265 cows at his farm at Harvey, 140 kilometres south of Perth. Dale, what are the returns like for WA dairy farmers today? Look, we've had a pretty reasonable price increase from July with our contract, but Pressures are on on the farm, fertiliser, insurance, labour, electricity, repairs, interest. They're all going up at substantial levels, so I think the margin probably hasn't changed too much. So can you break that down into 
a little more detail for us, Dale. So what, what increase did you get for your milk earlier this year? So the contract that I've got, we had an increase of roughly 13 cents a litre increase as an average price across the year. Of that, with the fertiliser price, that probably accounts for five to six cents a litre of that alone. And then then when we look at other costs and labour costs, um, there'd be easily another four or five cents gone into that. And so, yeah, the challenge is still there in front of us. Yeah, so I guess that puts that 13 cent increase, 13 cents per litre increase into some sort of perspective. I mean, when was the last time that you saw a price increase to that level, 13 cents a litre? We never have, never have. <laughs> never, seen, <laughs> never seen that sort of increase. And it's, uh, I mean, it's been pretty tough going for what the last few decades being a dairy farmer, especially with some of the, you know, the $1 a litre milk um, that you uh, had to live with for quite a few years there. Yeah, effectively, I mean, they complain about 10% price rise now, but the milk cabinet was capped at a dollar a litre for a long time. Um, so there was no increase at the at the supermarket level. So I guess we're between milk supply dwindling in the state, they've had to find some serious money to, to keep people milking cows. So if you hadn't had that, the dairy farmers hadn't had a sort of increase like that middle of this year, would some have left the industry? Well, we were definitely contemplating it. Um, when the fertiliser price has gone to where it has, and when we worked out that was five or six cents a litre alone in cost increase, um, if we were only going to get one or two or three cents a litre increase, um, I was not going to milk cows to lose money, so we would have wound up our dairy by Christmas time if that hasn't been for the increase. And earlier in the year, you would have been staring down the barrel at some pretty expensive grain prices too. Yeah, I mean, when in, in April, May, there was looking like there was going to be a, a real push on cereals and, and, well, canola went over, well over $1,100 a tonne, didn't it? So that was looking like wheat was going to hit $500 a tonne. So it was a real worrying time thing between fertiliser and grain, which were our two biggest inputs and costs in our business, um, we're going to see significant increases. Um, we didn't see how the existing milk price was going to make it work. So what um, do you say then to shoppers going through the checkout and, you know, reading the headline today that milk prices are up 10% in the last three months, um, you know, just adding to that shopping bill? Oh, look, there's no doubt it's putting pressure on the retail basket, but end of the day, do you want West Australian fresh sourced milk on WA shelves? If you do, you and, and at the end of the day, they're paying no more here for milk than what they are on the East Coast. So if we don't pay the price here now, it'll actually get dearer if it's an imported product from, from the East Coast or New Zealand. What's the state of the dairy industry right now, Dell? Oh, look, it's reasonably buoyant with the prices the way they are, but we still have no new entrants. We still have ageing farmers who don't have succession plans. And I, I can just see within the next five to ten years, we're going to have a lot less farmers in this state, a lot less milk. And I'll you, be one of them. Yeah, well, I was just saying, you're, you're, you've got those plans, what, in the next five years or so? You'll definitely be out. Yes, absolutely. I've made a decision that I'm not milking cows after 55. My knees and my shoulders are worth more than being on concrete. So um, we won't be you know, a dairy farmer in time to come. And I think there's a lot of a lot of people in the same boat. Yeah, in that sort of same age bracket that are kind of saying at a certain point, we're not, we're not doing yep. this anymore. 
Yeah. 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 And the, and the next generation, so, your children, they've gone off and done other things. Yeah, one one's in the mining industry, and um, another one's sort of three years into university chemical engineering degree. So, yeah, I don't think they're coming home. Then that means, you know, I don't know, your place goes up for sale. Someone may buy it and keep that dairy business going. Is that what you would hope for? Possibly, but in the short term, we'll probably transition to a beef herd and and run that without labour and and use our existing infrastructure and skills as good grass growers to to, um, run a beef herd. Yeah, okay. And I mean, for someone contemplating getting started in the dairy industry, and, and as you said earlier, there aren't many of those around, but it would cost a, a fortune. Well, uh, look, just for a simple 200 cow, 250 cow operation, you probably need, I don't know, three to $6 million to get going if you want to try and buy buy a farm and, and, and cattle and machinery. And, yeah. and so I can't see how people, young people, are going to find that sort of money to get into the industry unless they've got family are willing to help them into it. Now, you came back to the farm, the, the family property, in 1987 and been running it in your own right since 2002, so a long time. And then thinking about the future of the industry, how does that make you feel? Oh, disappointed. Disappointed in the way processes and supermarkets have, have just treated um, the suppliers and, I guess, we saw the worst of it in 2016 when we were left with no contract and run out of business, but they just don't have a long-term view on, on a relationship with their suppliers. That's, and it's, uh, it's probably gotten worse as corporate investments happen in the processing sector rather than family-owned processes. Do you think, I mean, as people, you know, in your generation, age group, decide that's enough? I mean, d- does it sort of create a tipping point where that respect, uh, that relationship is renewed again? I think we're past that, that point, to be honest. I, 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 I don't know. Unless a lot more money comes back in, well, maybe another 13 cents needs to be added to justify people to go and borrow money and invest in the industry and, and say, this is what I want to do. And I think it's a big ask if we're going to see that again. But otherwise eventually here in WA we'll be importing our milk. Is that how you see it? Possibly, yes. I mean, majority of cheeses and, and yogurts are, are imported into the state anyway as it is now. Yeah, it's probably not. No, it's not a stretch, oh. is it, to think that milk no, is next? No, 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 no. But I still think that milk on the shelf is good value <laughs> for a dollar, for the dollar. It's a good value, nutritious product and... Um, you know, if people want to pick on milk as the only thing that's killing their budget, well, I think you better look at the rest of the things in the in the basket and the fuel that you put in the car and everything else. Dale, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks for being on the show today. No Thanks, Belle. Cheers. Dale Hanks, he is a dairy farmer from Harvey in the States, southwest. 21 past 12 on the text, which is 0448922604. Paula says the potato growers need a serious increase in price yesterday. Thank you, Paula. That text to have your say is 0448922604. 21 past 12. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varaschetti on ABC Radio WA. 
An update from the newsroom, not far away, about nine minutes or so at half past 12. First, though, after two years of severe staff shortages from closed borders, WA farmers are welcoming the return of skilled backpacking workforce for this year's harvest. David Cox farms at Neridup, north of Esperance. He says it's a relief to have skilled workers back on board. Oh, look, for starters, the last two years have just been, you know, pretty tough with um, we just haven't had the skilled backpackers. So, well, whether they're really backpackers, but these are skilled European guys that we're chasing that have come off farms and, you know, they've, they've driven headers, operated machinery. So, yeah, look, it's really great to be able to get these, these guys back um, and give them the opportunity to come out and have an experience of an Australian harvest. So who were you relying on instead to fill that gap over the last couple of years? Look, we've really been just getting anyone that'll turn up, unfortunately, um, and it, it has been a problem. There's been a lot of unskilled backpackers, you know, the, the guys that would traditionally probably work in hospitality or fruit picking or these sort of jobs, Um and we've sort of, yeah, been getting them out onto the farm rolls, which is it just hasn't been quite ideal. You know, nowadays we we really do need the skilled guys. Are you getting a sense generally from the people you talk to that there is a a greater sense of optimism about the fact that the the borders be having been reopened and therefore farmers being able to welcome that backpacker workforce for harvest? Yeah, I think so. A lot of the yeah the people I've spoken to. Um, and just the feeling around is that now they're coming back in and, yeah, it's 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 a lot, you know, people are a whole lot happier about it. Uh, we've, some guys have gone through some, you know, a pretty tough seeding and harvest, previous harvest, um, understaffed, which has put a lot of pressure on full-time staff and families. So, yeah, look, the feeling is most people I talk to have got a have got their staffing requirements now. Near it up farmer David Cox with Hayden Smith. 24 past 12. Well, as you just heard, David is pretty happy to have those skilled backpackers returning for harvest. And so is Mari Fowler, who runs a large sheep and crop operation near Condingup, east of Esperance. Looking good. We have most of our staff on the ground at this stage in the last 10 days, I guess. We've had, you know, the majority of our um, overseas workforce have arrived um, and it's, yeah, been nice to have some, to see some new faces in Australia after a couple of years of not having any new people coming around. Approximately how many backpackers are you relying on this year? So we have 25 new backpackers coming in this harvest. And we also have some who have been working with us um, in the last couple of years who have you know, come back and probably on their third year of working holiday visa. So they're quite experienced on our farm as well. And I understand that a number of the backpackers that you're welcoming there this year have have come from their own backgrounds in in farming. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Um, we this year we've got a large English contingent in our workforce and many of them are graduates from ag universities in England and, you know, have their own yeah, farms or have, you know, worked on farms over there. Was your property 
particularly impacted by by COVID in terms of sourcing labour for harvest? It, it wasn't. Um, we were, I guess, quite lucky. We're in a, a certainly a beautiful part of the world, so being close to the coast and Esperance is a lovely town. So it was actually a really um, attractive proposition for backpackers to, you know, if they had to end up somewhere for a couple of years, it was a good place to be. So we um, had a very stable workforce, including that, you know, backpacker workforce for, for most of COVID. And that was different, but it was a really, it was a nice experience for all of us. We got to know them pretty well. And so it's now, you know, back to, I guess, what it was more, the more than the norm um, with new people just flying in to do harvest and then moving on to, you know, whatever other travels they want to do after that. Conding up farmer Murray Fowler with Hayden Smith and just talking about that large and enthusiastic team of backpackers on board for this year's harvest. 27 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Well, it's great news for the grain growers and if you can get your hands on some of those skilled overseas backpackers back into the system for your harvest. But it's not the case for the state's shearing industry. Darren Spencer is a shearing contractor and he's also president of the WA Shearing Industry Association. Now, Darren, we've been hearing about the backpackers flying back into Australia from overseas to work on farms. Why are WA shearing contractors still struggling to find shearers? Well, um, back earlier in the season, there was a few coming from New Zealand, but a lot of them didn't come to WA because of the airfare costs to get here. So it was quite easy for them just to drop into New South Wales and Victoria and uh, rather than coming all the way to WA. And Darren, is it just the shearers that the industry is short of or is everyone in the wool workforce, you know, all the way down from shed hands to classes, etc.? Yeah, right across the workforce, it, it's um, we're we're short on staff. I know um, this year AWI through their funding are putting a lot of emphasis onto shed staff and they're running schools for shed hands as well, more so than shearers this year, just to try and get more people into the industry. And how many contractors are running less teams than they normally would be? Oh, I couldn't I couldn't put a number on it. From, here but um, quite a lot are and um, yeah there's um, some new contractors come into this into the system as well but yeah now I know a lot of guys that would normally run three teams just can't find them so and even two teams um, there's contracts around that normally would run two teams are really struggling to even fill two teams. And what's the story for you then Darren with your teams? Uh, I'm struggling. Normally, uh, last couple of years we've only really run two teams this time of the year but um, this week through through injuries, um, you know, blokes going off injured, and uh, we've got a few learners on. I actually uh, got a phone call at Morning Smoker today. I was in Lake Grace, and one guy's done a wrist, so I jumped in the car and rushed to Lake King because I wanted to cut the shed out today, and I haven't shown myself for about five months. How'd you go? Oh, I'm going all right. <laughs> They're going to keep you on? Oh, I think the boss will keep me on. <laughs> Uh, how far yeah. behind schedule are you compared to the normal season then? If, uh, you know, you're down some teams and, and other contractors are in the same sort of situation? We're probably three weeks behind at the moment. So, um, yeah, hopefully we can uh, pick it up a little bit um, just heading forward so that um, by the time we hit Christmas, we'll have caught up most of our work with a bit of luck. So yeah, we we're, we're not doing it come January. Yeah, well, you're bumping up into harvest time. 
Uh, yeah, we traditionally work right through harvest. So, um, yeah, we only have a week off between Christmas and New Year and then back into it again. Twenty-seven to one. Well, I think I'm back. I hope you're there. It's all interesting today, isn't it? Off to the Bureau of Meteorology now. Caroline Crow is on deck this afternoon. And Caroline, let's take a look around the Southwest Land Division. How's it looking this afternoon and for the rest of the week? Yeah, so at the moment uh, in the Southwest Land Division, there's, there's a bit of cloud sort of in that southwestern parts, but it is just dropping uh, just the odd shower on that really uh, southern coastal parts there, sort of around that Walpole, Al- Albany area um, through that. And that will just continue during the day. Otherwise, um, the generally sort of cloudy conditions are continuing. But most of the uh, weather we're going to start getting uh, from tomorrow and into the weekend for the Southwest Land Division. So what we've got happening is a trough extending from the Pilbara is going to extend south through into central parts of the state. But coming into Friday, it's going to extend an arm to the west coast about sort of between Geraldton and Durian Bay. And then we're also going to get a low form in that trough on Saturday. And then in the mid-levels, we've also got a mid-level trough, which is bringing some instability and it's going to enhance some of the showers and potentially thunderstorms over the Southwest Land Division for Friday, Saturday and uh, into Sunday as well. So potentially the showers and uh, the risk of thunderstorms could start on Friday. Uh, we're looking sort of um, over sort of the southwestern part but the risk is actually more on Saturday or if it does start on Friday it looks like it's going to be a bit later in the day um, through uh, the southwest land division so coming into Friday sort of not looking at too much falls and there might be a pocket with an isolated fall of two to five millimetres just inland from Perth and to the southeast a little bit but coming into overnight Friday Saturday morning uh, those showers and uh, look as though they're going to enhance hands and uh, if I sort of draw a line say northeast of Bunbury to Albany and then a line around Durian Bay to Meriden to Israelite Bay that seems to be the main pocket of where the uh, moderate or heaviest falls are going to be uh, associated with uh, the low and the mid-level instability so they will mostly be be uh, first thing in the morning on Saturday through sort of the western and western parts, coastal parts and the great southern area and it's going to uh, extend east uh, during the day and be throughout the southwest land division sort of thing during the day as well with some thunderstorms potentially through the central west district into the great southern and also sort of around that Esperance area. Totals in that band that I just mentioned there, potentially we could see 10 to 20 millimetres, even a little bit more with isolated falls, 25 to 35 millimetres. And then outside those areas, uh, the southwest corner, so that southwest of 
uh, that Bunbury to Albany area, maybe two to five millimetres, and then sort of north of that area for remaining parts of the southwest land division. So sort of into the Geraldton area and north of Southern Cross there, we could see two to ten millimetres with the isolated odd heavier fall as well. And then coming into Saturday, as it all extends east, it is gradually going to weaken from the west as well. So by the evening, uh, most of the heaviest falls should be through the southeastern parts of the southwest land division. Coming into Sunday, we have a ridge starting to push through, which is then going to continue to contract the the surface trough east and uh, the showers are going to, or the heaviest showers are then going to contract more to the south coast as well, particularly around that Esperance area. So coming into Sunday, potentially showers still through most parts of the southwest land division, but mostly around the Esperance area, 10 to 20 millimetres possible, grading to uh, two to five millimetres from sort of the southwest capes across to Norseman area, and then just less than uh, two millimetres anywhere north of that. So a bit of weather happening through the Southwest Land Division, starting potentially on Friday, but mostly on Saturday, and then the heavier stuff contracting more southeast on Sunday. And then just an insight into next week, that ridge then becomes the dominant feature, and we're going to have the showers gradually just contracting and weakening still, um, and confined mostly to those south coastal parts. And what about the temperatures then, Caroline? Yes, uh, thanks for mentioning that, Belle. So um, for the West Coast uh, today is in the mid-20s or for that Perth area and sort of around that along the west coast, warmest day to day and uh, potentially into tomorrow. But coming into a Sunday particularly uh, as that ridge pushes through, we've got actually quite a cool air mass pushing up um, through the southwest land division and that is going to extend east through the whole southern parts of the state actually. So coming into uh, Sunday for the southwest um, sort of great southern area um, and those southern parts, we could see temperatures around mid-teens so it is quite cool for this time of the year so and quite below average as well Um, and then that's sort of continuing into the Monday and then gradually into sort of Tuesday and early next week we will start to see those temperatures starting to rise um, up again. And as far as the minimum temperatures go we're getting down to sort of one or two or not quite that low? Uh, it is going to be quite cool uh, through uh, central part, or just inland parts of the uh, southwest land division. So, coming into um, it's still going to be above five degrees over the next couple of mornings. But coming into Saturday morning, we will start seeing around yeah two to four degrees uh, through the Great Southern, particularly through that area there and those adjacent parts. Uh, so it is definitely cool, and then. Those cooler temperatures will continue into Sunday morning um, and extend with that southerly push uh, up into the central wheat belt as well and even creep into the great southern and inland parts of um, inland of Esperance area. So, yes, quite cool temperatures as well. All right, let's take a look at northern and eastern parts of the state. Yeah, so at the moment in the north, uh, there's quite a bit of patchy cloud around sort of through the western parts of the Kimberley and south into eastern parts of the Pilbara and into the interior and in that area there we've got uh, potential for thunderstorms. There has been a couple of thunderstorms pick up just in the interior at the moment and uh, yesterday we had or even now there's just some light rain coming out of it in that western part of the Pilbara. So isolated showers and thunderstorms through that area there, potentially creeping into a little bit further south, sort of um, not as far 
east, uh, west is uh, Mekathara, but sort of into that area there and potentially down to the Linster Laverton area uh, today. Um, and then that's associated with the trough. And then as that trough extends uh, further south as well and deepens with the low into it, uh, coming into Friday, there's uh, showers and thunderstorms through far eastern parts of the, the state into the interior and uh, throughout the gold fields. Uh, and into the Eucla. So that's all associated with the surface trough. And then coming into Saturday, uh, very similar area associated once again with the surface trough where we'll see those thunderstorms over eastern parts of the state into the interior, once again in the goldfields and southeastern parts. And we could see some uh, heavier falls associated with some of the thunderstorms coming into sort of Friday and uh, the weekend, um, potentially sort of five to ten millimetres, possibly slightly heavier uh, falls with some of the thunderstorms throughout that area there. And then coming into Sunday, as that ridge pushes through, we will start to see the conditions ease off a little bit with it mostly being showers and through uh, the southeastern parts of the state, so into the Eucla and just adjacent parts of the gold fields and uh, the interior, and then on Monday it will contract further south again. And similar, as we mentioned, just talked about the temperatures in the southwest land division, those cooler temperatures will extend into the remaining southern parts of the state, so into the gold fields and uh, the interior and Eucla coming into Sunday and Monday and will extend further north as well into uh, even the Gascoigne and reaching into the Pilbara's, uh, that cold air pushes up. It's a decent cold uh, air mass before we start seeing them gradually increase from the west again, sort of early, mid next week. And as far as the warnings go for this afternoon, many on the list? Uh, currently, we just have some marine wind warnings, and today they go around from the Ningaloo coast, so sort of that northwestern part of the Pilbara. Uh, th- actually, sorry, from the Pilbara coast, uh, all the way through down the west coast, so the Ningaloo coast, all the way down to the Perth uh, region. And then coming into tomorrow, uh, the winds do ease slightly in the northwest, and it's con- the warning contracts uh, to the Geraldton area and down the west coast uh, to Cape Lewin. Caroline, thank you for going through all those details. Appreciate that. Cheers, it Belle. is 18 to 1 here on the Country Hour, just checking the rainfall figures. So this is a look back at the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning and checking 5 mils and over. There's not much to report. There's nothing over 5 mils in northern and eastern forecast districts. And just a couple to mention in the southwest land division in the uh, southern coastal region, Denmark 14, and Narrakup West had six over two days. 17 to 1. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Now, if you've ever bought a melon, taken it home, you're cutting it up, your mouth is just watering with anticipation of that first juicy bite and only to be really disappointed with the flavour and the sweetness. Well, then you'll be pleased to know the industry is trying to do something about that. Melons Australia is working on a new quality improvement project to try and lift the standards of melons and ensure you always have a good eating experience. Jonathan Davey from Melons Australia is working with Mark Lufen from Crop Quality Specialist Delatics. Jonathan says if successful, it's going to be a win-win for producers and you the shopper. 
We want our growers to be more profitable. We want Australian consumers to enjoy more Australian melon. We've got some improvement we can make. We know after a bad eating experience, consumers are off the market for about six weeks. If we can shorten that window, if we can remove that window, the real opportunity for melon growers across the country is, I don't even know that I could put a figure on it right at this point in time. Can you tell me how you're going about this project? What are the steps? There's two main parts of the project at the moment. One is selecting melons from retail and wholesale and having those measured and checking those against the standards. And that will happen for a whole year and uh, right across the country. The other main step is we're running some taste panels in Brisbane where we're getting a range of melon maturity from very immature to very mature melons and there's going to be a whole range of consumers eating those melons and we're testing them at the same time and that data will all go into part of the maturity development. What's the standard like now for melons and where do we want to get it to through this project? There is a de facto standard at the moment that um, most of the supermarkets are using and at the moment we're using that. We're not uh, making any judgments on, on that at the moment. We are just comparing against the standard. And at the moment we're seeing about, on average, about 50% of the fruit meeting the current standard. We will review that at the end of this project when we start looking at new standards. And you've done this work with other fruits before. What have you managed to do with those that you hope to bring across to melons? We've worked with... Um, kiwi fruit with table grapes with citrus uh, for example with citrus we started in New Zealand about eight years ago and the consumer acceptability at the time was about 67 percent two-thirds so one-third op- uh, chance of getting a bad eating experience a negative eating experience uh, this year 99 percent so you have 99 percent chance of having a good eating experience brilliant What does it mean in a practical sense if these sort of standards are implemented? Would it mean there's less fruit coming online overall? Would it mean that fruit's coming online at different times? What does that actually mean? It might see different regions change and start to produce at different times if that's what we need to do to meet the new standards. We actually hope to see more fruit available for consumers. So whether that's through all fruit meeting the minimum standards or some other work that we're doing off the side of this project around what are the other products that we can turn melons into? Is there value adding we can do? Can we start to produce more melon juice? Can we turn it into frozen ice blocks? What are those other options? We don't quite know, but we know that we're going to have to have something that sits hand in hand with this quality improvement project and hopefully that means more melons, more varieties and more options available for consumers across the country. We're really hopeful that implementing this, these new standards in 12 months when, when this work's finished, we'll see that benefit shared right across the board, everyone happier, consumers happier and you know most people are happy to pay for a quality product. If we can guarantee that that's going to happen, we'll start having those discussions about what the price of of melons looks like moving forward. Melons Australia Executive Officer Jonathan Davey and Dalatix Managing Director Mark Lufin. They were in Kununurra just recently for the Melons Roadshow and they caught up with Steph Sinclair. 12 to 1. Christian Blocker farms melons just outside of Kununurra at... 
Bothcamp Australia. He says there's a lot of work to be done to get consumers trust. I think it's a long time coming and it'll be beneficial for the industry in the long term. I think we're we're pretty good in terms of where we're at with the QA standards, but when you see the um, consumer numbers around how often they have a good experience with melons, I think we've got a lot of work to do to gain consumer trust that every time that they go to buy a melon, that they'll get a good melon, and that's that's where we want to be at. Do you think it will mean many major management changes here? I don't think it'll mean too many changes for us. I think it just being more particular about what we do. I think the the framework around what we do, it's there. It's just focusing more on, especially around the, the sugar content, the bricks, that we're, we're more particular about the maturity of the fruit that we pick. What are some of the factors that are contributing to perhaps consumers not having a good experience every time they purchase a melon? A few things. So from, from a farm point of view the maturity of the fruit that we pick that that we pick it at the right time that the bricks level the sugar level is there probably should be above 10 varieties as well because there's large differences between varieties some look better whereas others actually might not look as good but taste better an interesting one is that in terms of the control of the fruit like on farm we pick and the next day the fruit's gone so in terms of control of of fruit post picking it's only here on farm about 10 percent of the time Um, that supply chain the the couple of days it takes three to four days it takes on a truck to get to market around australia Um, and then you know it's with an agent or some sort of person that accumulates and it goes to a retailer so by the time the customer gets it the fruit is somewhere between you know four to seven days old at best and trying to maintain the quality along the whole supply chain it's not just us as farmers that have to work on that it's transport agents and and retailers to a large extent as well on that what are your main concerns with this project and the barriers to its potential success who needs to be involved to make it a success it's not a silver bullet it's part of a process to improve customer confidence in australian melons i think it's it's one part of it it's a it's an important part but um, i think there's other parts in in ensuring that other parts of the supply chain are doing their bit as well which will have as much of an impact as what we do here on farm what are you hoping is the outcome of of this project i think we'd like to see that melons become more of a staple in people's everyday diet that it's not something that they'll pick up occasionally you want it to be like a an orange or an apple it's something that people buy all the time Ord Valley melon farmer Christian Blocker. And Melons Australia is planning on having the new standards in place by the end of 2023. You can read more about that story. It's online now for you right now. Steph Sinclair's put that together. And just search ABC Melon Quality. There's some very delicious looking melons on this online story that I'm just scrolling through now. The rock melon, the cut up pieces of watermelon. That does look delicious. And also a great photo there of... um, Christian Blocker, who you just heard from. On the text, uh, Smithy says, regarding melons, the size is important. Rock melons and honeydew melons are a great size for a family, but watermelons are so huge. Why don't they grow watermelons the same size as the rock melons and the honeydew melons? I don't know. Maybe they can't do that. I do buy like sections of the really large watermelons 
then you can see what it kind of looks like too. I don't know. Good question though, Smithy. Thank you for that. The text is 0448 It is eight minutes to one. Well, bees may live in a matriarchal system, but the commercial beekeeping industry is still dominated by men. However, Great Southern beekeeper Shelley Bowden wants to change that and bring women into the honey industry. Shelley's been beekeeping for 10 years at Boxwood Hill and Bremer Bay, east of Albany. She's leaving the industry, but she wants to sell her business to another woman and introduce that woman to the wonderful world of honeybees. Well, I think females are very underrepresented in the industry, so it would be good to see more females come on and pass their knowledge along. I think females do things a little bit different to the men as well in regards to, you know, managing the weight and the, the workload in general. I think it's a very inventive job and I think females are pretty good at inventing and also at multitasking, I suppose. So it would be good to see somebody else come along and and become a beekeeper and learn all the joys of what's involved. And have you come across many other female beekeepers in your time? There are a few that I'm in contact with on Facebook. Uh, I'm not sure that a lot of them do it sort of full-time, but I know there are a couple out there. It'd be nice to see a lot more. And so has it been a hard decision to move on and away from beekeeping? It has. It's been a very hard decision, Um, one that I'm a bit sad about but also a bit excited about because, uh, you know, you never know where it might lead me in the future but everything comes to an end, I guess, and and it's time to move on. So what led to the decision to move on? Basically, it is a lot of workload and, as I said, I'm not getting any younger so it's a good time to move on and do other things. Uh, My partner also has health issues so it would be a lot nicer for him not to have to work so hard as well so yeah. What got you into the industry in the first place? Um, I was going down the the road of self-sufficient growing my own fruit and vegetables and things like that and I thought well you need bees to pollinate and and honey's great to eat so I thought why not why not get a beehive and start learning about bees and that's what I did I bought a beehive and now I've got over 200 beehives and that's what's led to where I am now. So I really call myself the accidental beekeeper because I didn't really ever go into beekeeping with the thought that I'd be a beekeeper. You know, I always thought I'd just have maybe a couple of hives in my backyard and that would be it, but one thing led to another and I had a friend call in and he's been a beekeeper for a lot of years, he's retired now, but he's passed on so much of his knowledge to me and made my job a lot easier, you know, to expand, having that knowledge behind me, because there is so much, so much to learn. That's why I'd like to sort of pass it on to somebody else, because you spend all that time accumulating the knowledge, and then, and not, it's not just knowledge about the bees, but about the flowers in the area, and the seasons, and what spots work best, and what flowers are best, and what flowers do and don't produce nectar, because not every flower that you see produces honey or nectar. So... It would be nice to be able to pass on that to somebody else. And what sort of legacy would you like to pass on after all the work that you've done? I think the legacy of really caring about the environment perhaps and just being aware of, of the environment. You know, the, the when you're a beekeeper you're sort of always looking at, it's a bit like any farming, you're always checking the weather and the, the 
whether it's rained this year or enough for the flowers and etc etc so I think it's a very nature based job although it's hard work it's also a joyful and almost relaxing job as well so it would be nice to pass it on to someone that could follow that on and and I try and do the no chemical beekeeping as well so I stay away from canola and, and things like that so yeah I'd like to find someone with that same sort of mindset as me to work with the, with the nature and rather than push the bees to their extreme. How have you found being a woman in this more male dominated industry? I've found I got I get a lot of attention <laughs> I'm known as the honey lady um, people call me honey, <laughs> all sorts of things like that. Yeah, mostly you just get that maybe a bit of surprise and a bit of attention that, that there's a female beekeeper out there that's doing all this work and all this stuff on their own, per se. So, yeah. Shelley Bowden, commercial beekeeper on the South Coast, hoping to sell her business, SKK Honey, to another woman. You can read more about the story. It's online for you now. Search ABC Female beekeeper and you'll find Sophie Johnson's story, ABC female beekeeper, to have a look at the photos that Sophie's put together and the online story. It is three minutes to one here on the Country Hour and it's time to head off to the market to Mount Barker today for the results of today's cattle sale. Terry Birkin's been keeping an eye on everything, the yarding, uh, the quality and the prices. Terry, how were the numbers today? Numbers decreased this week by 497 for a total of 1,012. Finnish cattle's processors were limited in numbers as the sale was dominated by full pens of very well presented young calves. There was also good support from feeder buyers and restockers alike. Lightweight weaner steers sold to a top of 642 cents, while lightweight yearling steers reached 560 cents per kilo. Weaner steers sold from 550 cents to 614 cents for heavy weights, while the lighter weights were seen 550 cents to 642 cents per kilo. Weaner heifers returned 450 cents to 518 cents per kilo. Yearling steers made 420 cents to 560 cents, while yearling heifers sold from 420 cents to 544 cents per kilo. Grown steers made 358 cents to 442 cents, and grown heifers were selling for 320 cents to 468 cents per kilo. Heavy prime cows sold from 250 cents to 328 cents, while lighter cows made 150 cents to 260 cents per kilo. Heavy bulls returned 240 cents to 336 cents, while lighter weights made from 380 cents to 452 cents per kilo. This is Terry Birkin from LA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Terry, thank you for going through those details. And that's a wrap on the livestock markets for this week, isn't it? Tomorrow, this time tomorrow, just catching up with Danny Burkett to go through the results of the wool market. It is a minute away from the news at one. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for the world today. Fill up now. Motorists warned of a massive petrol price spike as cost of living pressures ramp up including energy, interest rates and now fuel. The clean-up begins in flood-ravaged parts of northern Victoria. Are residents receiving the assistance they need? And Australian troops are being sent to train Ukrainian forces in the UK. Just what will they be teaching them? Those stories and more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. It is not far away. Great to catch up with you today. The 1 o'clock news is next.